Welcome to OVS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 70. This episode is an interview with Nick Borrelio from ESNet, the U.S. Government Department of Energy Science Network. ESNet connects sites in the United States and Western Europe over dedicated links. In this episode, Nick talks about the role of latency monitoring and managing a network. On to the interview. Welcome to OVS Orbit. I'm here with Nick Baraglio, who's been uh, working on SDN and the service provider industry since about 2009. Nick, do you want to say a little bit uh, more about yourself before we jump into today's topic? Sure. Um, I've been in the networking field since, you know, the mid to late 90s, uh, primarily working in research and education and service provider networks. Uh, Like you said, I've been dabbling and messing around with SDN since about 2009, both in labs and in production, and um, glad to be here. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. So uh, we, we talked about a few topics uh, before you uh, came on, and uh, one of them that really piqued my interest was that you've been doing some studies of, of latency in SDN networks for a while. So uh, what... Uh, what what brought you to that interest? Was there a, a real problem with latency in uh, some some network that was important to you? So um, in my current day job, uh, I work for Energy Sciences Networks, which is the service provider and backbone carrier for the Department of Energy. One of the tools and um, data points that we leverage very heavily is um, long-term latency tracking over our wide area links. And having uh, built the supercomputing conference network a handful of times, and I think you did a podcast with uh, Brad Cowie about the faucet deployment we did, we also leverage it, um, you know, the same toolkit for latency testing in that environment as well. And having done, you know, SDN for a long time and wide area networking for a long time, um, one of the things that uh, became fairly obvious to me is that, you know, as we start implementing soft switches and other NFV type of environments in production, there's a different set of variables that you have to account for when you're using latency as one of your, um, you know, one of your data points for, for determining performance on a network. You mentioned long-term latency. Is that what uh, people usually think of in uh, uh, of, of as latency in a network? Or is there something more specific or different that I should take away from that? So one of the things that we found is that tracking uh, one-way latency in particular is very, very good at being able to determine soft failures in wide area networks as well as um, impending performance problems or existing performance problems. So if you have a baseline um, of latency, and this can be anything, but we happen to use a tool called OAMP to do it, which is part of the PerfSonar toolkit. Um, we track this over very long periods of time. It's basically ongoing testing that happens um, from from dedicated nodes in our network. We can start to see fluctuations in things um, that may be you know very peripherally related. So like a, a failing optic, or um, there's been a splice that's happened in the fiber path somewhere. We can actually determine uh, with pretty good uh, accuracy like when those things happen and what the 
what the uh, outcome is of them. So when most people think of latency, I think they think of, uh, you know, like a ping round trip time or something. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's one useful data point. But we're talking about very high, or sorry, very low tolerance and, and high accuracy latency. You have to have like a cellular or a GPS clock and a very strong clock source in the system to be able to track it at this level. And, and, and so we use that as a, as a very important part of how we manage our network. Um, so that, that's really what I'm talking about when I mean latency, not necessarily something like smoke ping or, or you know, just uh, onesie twosie, one off tracking of, of latency along a path. It sounds like you you can use this sort of thing to uh, to predict impending failures. Is does it actually tend to do that in practice? It's 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 been able to um, ascertain impending problems on more than one occasion. Um, so we run basically a loss free network, and uh, we you know we we instrument it very very tightly and very extensively to be able to maintain that. Um, because we're doing things like moving enormous data sets from the Large Hadron Collider at CERN to, say, you know, a national lab. So it's got, you know, it's got to go through an optical ring in Europe. And then, you know, one of a handful of our 100 gig transatlantic links and then into our continental network. And then it's got to, you know, pass through that and get down into the lab. So we want to be able to instrument that at every point that we possibly can. Um, so that these very, very large data transfers don't have to get restarted. Wow. So are you more interested in latency of individual links? Is that what you're primarily looking at? Or are you looking at, uh, at end-to-end latencies, or is it a combination? It's a combination. So we have a full mesh of latency testing for all of our testers. Uh, so, you know, at every, at every pop that we have, we have a dedicated um, performance node that does both um, latency testing using OAMP or TWAMP, TWAMP, uh, depending. Uh, we primarily use OAMP for one-way latency, and we do it bidirectionally. Um, and we also do bandwidth testing across that as well. And on these nodes, we also allow for ad hoc testing to anyone that's an RNE network. So if you're at, let's say, University of Illinois, which is where I worked before I worked here, I was able to test from my test node, my perf- my PerfSonar node, to any of the ESNet performance nodes um, as a, as a uh, either an ongoing test or a on-demand test. So tell me a little bit more about what the packets are likely to go through uh, on, uh, on on one of these end-to-end tests. Is it uh, primarily high-performance hardware? Is there is there software uh, involved at uh, in intermediate points or at one end of it? What what kind of uh, what's being stressed? So at this point, it's um, primarily carrier-grade MPLS hardware um, at hundred gig for the most part. Um, the test nodes exist at different uh, speeds, but they're they're primarily 10 gig connected. Um, so let's say you know the life of a packet is you know scientific instrument or cluster uh, heads through the local network at um, a lab site or at a university, um, transits whatever their uh, science DMZ path is if they have one, which is basically a friction free path with no um, 
stateful middle boxes in it. Um, then through whatever mechanism it needs to get to our network, which then it starts passing through our series of core routers that are all um, interconnected. And that's where our, our instrumentation starts um, is at the first pop that they um, ingress into our network. And then along that path, it may take you know a handful of different core routers. Uh, it may be encapsulated in a VPLS circuit depending on what the service is that it's riding in. And then it pops out of the network at whatever the other end is that it needs to uh, egress at. So let's say if it's going from CERN, this is an example I use a lot because a lot of our uh, data currently comes from there, um, high energy physics data. So it's going to go through CERN's network. We have two pops at CERN. It goes into, into our network there, transits uh, an optical path, um, so like a DWDM path and uh, packet gear that we control and then goes across the Atlantic, hits a piece of packet gear that we control um, and then probably you know maybe two or three more of those depending on where it's going to uh, come out at then comes out of our network goes into a, a piece of high performance packet gear at a lab site and then transits whatever links it needs to inside their network to whatever the repository or high performance cluster is Okay, so uh, you're you're dealing with transfers of, of very large data, um, and there's there's this old saying that you, you you shouldn't underestimate the bandwidth of a of a Volkswagen full of magnetic tape. I'm I'm curious is there is there a threshold at which you start uh, uh, mailing around hard drives? Uh, what what's the what's the consideration there? I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious. Does does that ever come up? Um, it has come up on occasion, but never really as a bandwidth constraint um, within our network. So our mission is that the network is never an impediment of scientific research. So we have a very aggressive and very well thought out um, upgrade path and capacity planning process that we go through. So most of our links are, uh, all of our backbone links for the most part are 100 gig. Um, there are places where it is in by 100 gig um like for example we have uh four by 100 gig across the atlantic ocean to different points in europe that are all part of a ring that we control so where i've seen um issues where you know there's been consideration for mailing hard drives around um it's to getting into places that are very remote that don't have high bandwidth capabilities um but those are getting fewer and further between uh, as far as uh, the ability to move the data around. Like, for example, there's uh, a big telescope on a mountain in, in Chile that's taking these incredibly high-resolution uh, photos of the sky. Um, and they need to move those off this mountain to a resource at NCSA, which is where I live and worked at one point um, here in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And the you know getting getting the images off the mountain is the hardest part, right? Because it's remote, um, and there's been an ongoing project for years to to build out to that so that they're they don't have to do things like move ship hard drives around. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, so you you've mentioned a couple of pieces of, of software. Uh, so uh, can you say more about uh, the, the software you use for measuring latency uh, and, uh, and, and, and how you use it and, and where it comes from and, uh, and so on? 
Sure, there's an open source project called Personar that is basically a, a, a meta toolkit for performance testing. Um, and this is used very heavily in RNE worlds. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's been uh, developed by ESNet and Internet2 and a handful of other uh, RNE institutions over the years. Uh, it's essentially at this point a full distribution. Um, it's Linux-based, um, it's purpose-built, so you basically get an ISO and you uh, can either run it off of the ISO and, uh, and and leave it that way temporarily, or you can install it into bare metal and run it that way. Um, within that toolkit is a handful of, of uh, very useful pieces of network uh, testing software um, that's been under, like I said, it's been under development for a very long time. Um, the one I'm talking about uh, is called OAMP. Um, there's also a, a TWAMP, TWAMP, that does two-way latency testing that's now built into that as well. Uh, and, and, and so that, that's primarily what I'm talking about here, but there's a bunch of other stuff that's built into this toolkit as well, like reverse trace route, you know, a bunch of web-based stuff that you can see. Um, it also has a front end for graphing these things over time. It lets you do reporting to a centralized dashboard if you want. Um, you can open and close it as much as you want to. So say a, a you know, commercial ISP wants to start using this. They can build their own uh, and not open it up to the world to test to. It can just be self-contained. Or they can say, we're going to let anybody test against our, our person, our installations. Um, the R&E ones typically keep it inside the RNE world like ours are available to anyone that's connected to an RNE network um, but say I can't run one in my house and and test against it that way because I'm on you know just commercial broadband so you've been saying RNE a lot and I'm not sure that everyone knows uh, uh, what that is so uh, maybe you should expand the acronym for people oh, that's a very very good point um, RNE in the case of what I'm talking about is research and education so um, universities, research facilities, uh, and those types of environments. They, t they tend to build their networks a little bit differently than, say, you know, like an enterprise network or a, um, you know, or a service provider network. Although in the RE and the research and education world, we have the notion of our own service provider style networks uh, as well. And they tend to also be uh, built in a little bit different fashion than, uh, let's say, you know, a national commercial carrier back to the uh the personar software uh i it it sounds like this is primarily for long-term monitoring it's it's not the sort of thing you'd use for uh day-to-day -day fire uh firefighting is that more or less correct well it's 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 pretty good for both actually um so you've got a, a fair amount of long-term data that you can reference so you can do uh, anomaly detection based on that you know the the trending is really useful um, especially if you've had it running for a, a long period of time the um, short-term sort of triage style tactical uh, troubleshooting that's available is also uh, fairly robust so I can say this sort of looks strange let me kick off an on-demand test that's just gonna run once to just see what the state is right now because, you know, user X, Y, and Z has uh, reported a problem. Uh, so let me see if I can replicate it from outside of their security perimeter. Uh, so you can do that kind of stuff as well. 
Um, it also has, uh, like I said, a, a fair amount of sort of on-demand tools like reverse trace route and some other things that you can go to it and you can say, well, this something looks like it's changed. Let me look at this path going to it. And then from, from the test host, I can look at what the path is backwards. And I think that that's an often underestimated uh, bit of data for when you're looking at uh, a large long path that's out that's potentially outside of your control. This podcast, we talk a lot about software switching. Does software switching come into uh, the, the sort of latency that you're interested in? Um, and uh, what, what sort of aspects are important? So that's something that's been coming up more and more because with, you know, the inclusion of things like compute resources on the wide area network or caching systems um, that are put in the direct path or even CDNs for that matter. Um, you know, we've talked about things like science CDNs and things like that so that we don't have to move this large data more than once. But this is really applicable to any net, any big carrier network. Um, you have to be able to understand what the inclusion of things like soft switches and and, um, and other NFV, you know, network function virtualization uh, techniques are going to introduce into that network because you have a, a sort of different paradigm, right? Where a lot of this stuff is virtualized and, you know, you're switching maybe, you know, there may be a handful of different switches that are connected to different resources inside of a a compute node that is potentially functioning as a, you know, a router at that point, or, you know, some other type of in the middle uh, network element and having the ability to understand how that changes, if it changes and how it changes um, in a software switching world, I think is going to be increasingly important as we start to see more of these things push further out, uh, from the data center into the wide area network and into other aspects of um, both service provider and enterprise networking. In open vSwitch land, I, I've always expected latency to uh, to become an issue, but I haven't ever received very much feedback on a couple of things that have always interested me, and, and therefore I, I've never really investigated them much. And the, the I guess the first two things that, that occur to me are... Does OVS or or do other software switches introduce too much latency? And and number two, and this this is actually I, I to me this seems actually more interesting. Does do, is there too much variance in the in the latency that it introduces from packet to packet or, or flow to flow? And and do you have any any thoughts or any feedback on that? Are are they questions that you've you've looked into? These are questions that I also want answered um, because. You know, as part of the as part of my job, um, I'm looking at you know next generation technologies and prototyping them to see where they fit into our environment. Um, and so I need to know the answers to those type of questions. And so far, I haven't really seen too much that's concerning to me. Um, but I haven't I haven't done a battery of tests yet, like a, like what I would consider to be comprehensive testing on this because. Where I, where I think that we may see some variance um, is under heavy load, right? Where you've got, um, you know, you've got a, a series of compute resources that are all software switched inside the network that are, uh, that are 
potentially uh, critical to whatever the network is doing at that point and what happens when the load on the CPU of the compute resource gets so high that it starts infringing on the compute resources required for the underlying switching software switching um those are those are questions that I that I would like to have answered as well, um, and it's really if you think about it, it's not terribly different from, let's say, putting a layer you know an un, a layer two box in a path somewhere, and not it not having enough resources, right? Let's, let's say for example, you know, a spanning tree loop, which is the quintessential bane of every layer two thing everywhere. Um, that's got the power to take down an entire network. Um, and so how is, how is software switching different in the context of a high CPU load like that? Maybe not, not necessarily caused by span tree loop, but something that does something similar that just eats every resource available to switch packets or flows. Right. And I think there's a couple of questions that might be unique to software switching. One of them is that you don't always have dedicated resources for the switching. Uh, if if you're running DPDK and you're dedicating CPUs to it, then you do more or less have dedicated uh, CPU, but you're you're competing for uh, for PCI and memory bandwidth and, and and caches and so on. If if you're not using DPDK or you're not dedicating CPUs to it, then you're also competing for uh, for for CPU time and. Uh, if if the scheduler decides that uh, that that your uh, that your flow setup uh, uh, code isn't going to be scheduled for another uh, hundred milliseconds, then you could get a a large surprising delay in uh, in the beginning of your flow, um, and and that sort of question has always worried me a little, um, and I've I've been kind of surprised that uh, that that I've received very little feedback on it. It makes me wonder. Uh, is it not really a problem, or is it that the people who, uh, for whom it would be a problem, are uh, are tending to use dedicated resources? What, uh, what, what do you, uh, what do you look for if if you're setting up something like that? Would would that be uh, one of your first concerns? So you'd you'd go ahead and, and make sure that you dedicated as as much as you needed, or is it more of a reactive kind of thing where? Uh, you you, uh, you you try it out and see if it works, and uh, if you don't see any problems, you you uh, you forge ahead. Um, how how much how much planning is there? <laughs> so I think for me, um, we want to try to suss out as much of that as we possibly can in the labs, um, because once things go into the wide area network, it's very difficult. I wouldn't say it's very difficult. It's much more involved to change them at that point because you have to involve smart hands and you know access to remote pop locations and and things like that just it's not the same as a data center where you probably have controlled access but it's all in one place uh, and there's probably somebody that's physically there all the time Um, so for these types of things we we i think my methodology is typically and for and this goes for most things actually is I'm going to try to put it in the lab and throw as much test pattern traffic at it, both transit and directly aimed at it as possible, just to see what happens. And then in the course of doing that, I want to make sure that it's it's all highly instrumented. So I want to instrument you know, the throughput, the latency, 
all the aspects of what the compute hardware is, you know, memory utilization, CPU utilization, things like that, disk threat, anything, anything that I can record and do trending on, I'm going to do that. Um, because in my experience and in the majority of my career, it's always the weird things, right? You know, because we live sort of on the fringe of, of, of networking and we push things very hard, we always tend to see the cracks around the edges. And so I want to instrument as much of it as I possibly can. And at least for me, I am personally okay with knowing 70%, right? Because to me, there is no 100%. There's close. But if I know 70% and I understand how it's going to fail, that's nine-tenths of the way there. Um, So I want to intentionally try to break the things before I can trust them. Um, and so that's going to be my methodology for testing these things as we start doing uh, more compute on the WAN and more virtualized uh, network functions. I want to build them how I think we're going to run them, and then I'm going to break them. Uh, and I want to record how that works because as soon as I understand how it breaks, then I'm going to know what to expect in, in fixing it. You say you want to break it. Is that mainly uh, like a, a, a high load kind of a test? Or uh, do you do things that are uh, uh, comparable to what we hear about in uh, uh, public cloud environments where people will set up, uh, set up agents that uh, you know, intentionally uh, break and, and, and degrade things to, to see if the, the rest of it continues working? So it's not quite as, as uh, refined as the Netflix chaos monkey model, right? Uh, it's, right. it's more like we're going to set it up and we're going to start pushing things through it like we would expect to do on, um, you know, in a normal workflow. And then while that's happening, we want to throw apples at it. Um, you know, we want to have, uh, we want to have some pen testing that's happening. Um, we've got a very, very skilled pen testing group. Uh, security team that works for us that they live for this kind of thing so they're going to start poking at it and figure out you know where are the cracks and where are the holes and can i make this go away and can i get into it Uh, so they're going to do that kind of thing against it Um, and then we want to do uh, some other mechanisms like let's let's see what happens when we drive the load up on the the host system like how how does it change the the uh, the tracking and the and the long term graphing uh, of these data sources, you know, when we when we send you know a couple of the CPU cores up to one hundred percent using whatever, um, and then and then just sort of go from there, right? Like we want to see, like I personally want to see things break because I know that everything has a breaking point, um, and so once we know what those breaking points are, then we can you know, then we can take them into account and adjust for them um, appropriately. Right. I, I bet you're much more comfortable knowing the breaking point than, than not knowing it. Yeah. I mean, but we also understand that there are going to be unknown unknowns. Um, <laughs> so it's not like we expect everything to be, you know, to, to, that we, we want to understand as many certain scenarios as we can, but we also get that we're human, right? And we're not going to yeah. always know every single thing. But the more of those things we know, the more we can document and the more we make it easier to fix when we do encounter them. And then a lot of times the unknown unknowns are related, right? So it's very rare that we see something that's completely out of the blue, uh, although it does happen. 
Um, but just preparing, being as prepared as we can, you know, for that kind of thing. That's why we, that's why we have a pretty extensive test lab and, and we, we really exercise it quite a bit. You've described a lot of your applications as transfers of large files or large data sets. There, there must be some other important applications for the network that, that don't really fall under that umbrella. Uh, can, can you describe one or two of those? Oh, absolutely. Um, so not only do we have the mission of moving the science data around, we also um, are the primary service provider for the most part. So we have to connect... Um, the sites uh, and the labs to uh, commercial resources like cloud providers uh, for multiple things. You know, some of them use them for their, um, you know, email and, you know, the typical things and, you know, their enterprise type tools, uh, calendars, email, file systems for sharing things, you know, Google Drive and Office 365 and those types of things. We have to have robust connectivity for all of those things, but we also have to make sure that we have connectivity for compute resources that may exist in the cloud because cloud bursting is a, is a real thing, um, which basically what that is is you've got, you know, say a CPU um, or a, I'm sorry, a, a high-performance uh, job that you want to run but you may want to use um, a GPU system to do part of it, and you may not have one. So you can burst to a commercial service that has, uh, you know, a bunch of GPUs that you can use to crunch the data. So we have to make sure that we have connectivity to that, as well as the typical enterprise style of, uh, of tools that and, and applications that um, that a normal enterprise is going to want to use. So we have a we have a mix of small flows and big flows on our network. I feel like I have a, a, a decent sketch in my mind of the, the the sort of network and the applications that you support and the, the, the way that latency uh, is involved at, at a high level. Um, is there a chance you could uh, you could share some uh, some specific example, some kind of a, a war story to put it all together and, and, and show how, uh, how the tools and, and the network work together to, to solve, solve problems? I can give you some examples from, uh, you know, basically the, the trenches of troubleshooting uh, network problems. That would be perfect. And, and they're, they're pretty straightforward, really. They're not really black magic at all. Uh, it's, you know, basically more than one occasion we've seen where latency in our OAMP testing has had a um, a very a very abrupt spike, um, and that spike is affecting performance across uh, a link. And how how did you initially find out about that? Was it somebody watching a graph, or was there some sort of alert? How how did that happen? So we've got a knock that watches uh, a lot of these things, and I think in this case. It was actually discovered by one of the engineers happened to be looking at it at that exact time and noticed, hey, last night something something happened. Um, and, um, you know, after a, a handful of investigating and, and, and looking at, you know, interface counters and error counters and, and any logs and other uh, type of network telemetry data that we have, um, the... Uh, the tail circuit vendor, so the the contracted vendor. This was a this was not part of our backbone. This was basically a tail circuit, uh, which is you know from our backbone to a, a location, um, and it was it happened to be one that that uh, we didn't own uh, our own dark fiber on. So 
the vendor was contacted and said, oh, we had a, we had a maintenance last night. Uh, there was some problems, uh, fiber cut, and we had to do a splice. And the splice was noticeable enough that it caused an uh, increase in our latency graphing. So uh, we asked them to go and, and redo it, basically. I see. So you, you knew about the problem uh, uh, better than the service provider themselves. Well, I mean, a lot of times on the on the on the circuits that we lease, you know, they're looking for they're looking for up down. They're not necessarily tracking the the uh, the quality or whatever at the at the level that some other uh, you know some other entities might might do. And, and frankly, it's it's latency is something that a lot of people don't even think about as a as a as a tool for ascertaining problems across a network. Like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of big networks that that's not even something that they that they track um where i've seen it as a uh you know as a tool that's used a lot is in fixed wireless networks um so where the where the last mile is not fiber it's not copper it's not a physical cable at all it's either licensed or unlicensed spectrum so a lot of the providers that use that you know it's a lot of rural areas um, they actually track RF values as well as uh, packet latency across those links. And this is particularly true of, um, of unlicensed spectrum. So if it's like a 5 point uh, whatever gigahertz link or a 2.4 gigahertz link, they have no expectation of exclusivity on that path. So they need to use every a bit of... Um, telemetry and, and tracking that they can over long term to make sure that they don't need to say move around a little bit on within that spectrum a couple channels up a couple channels down or whatever um, but a lot of times it's not it's not even on the radar as a you know as a tool for troubleshooting sometimes a fixed wireless is useful even in places that aren't that rural uh, uh, one of our early offices at Nisera in Palo Alto we found that a, a fixed wireless link was the uh, 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 most efficient way to uh, get get bandwidth at first uh, uh, it was a little amazing to me to find out that Palo Alto was not necessarily all well wired for uh, internet connectivity yeah for sure I mean I know that there are a, a handful of um, uh, high frequency trading companies that are using uh, microwave links because technically microwave I think is lower latency and you know the the difference between you know some ridiculously small amount of latency is potentially millions of dollars for high frequency trading so uh, if you look and if you're ever in Chicago and you look around uh, you can you can pretty easily find some of these microwave towers that are exactly for that Oh, I didn't know it, uh, about that. I'll, uh, I'll I'll try to keep my eyes open the, the next time. Uh, so, uh, I I guess bringing it back to software switching a, a little bit again. Uh, do you have any uh, requests or, or any advice for uh, what software uh, switch uh, authors and maintainers should do to either assist in monitoring latency or to uh, uh, reduce latency? Uh, what, uh, what, what should we be doing better? I don't know that I could, I could uh, say you should be doing something better. I think I would be happy with uh, just the authors being mindful of it as an important uh, data point. 
um, and then understanding, maybe including it in some of the test suites before uh, before the uh, packages are released. You know what happens when we drive CPUs up, and you know here's the here's a latency test that we run as just part of the CI/CD process, or or, or however it's done. Um, I think that would be useful, but I'd be honestly, I would just be happy if people were thinking about it and understood that it's a potentially a, a, a useful set of things to test for, especially as we start to uh, deploy software switching and software routing uh, into wide area networks where the mean time before replacement is significantly longer than, say, a data center or even a campus and that laying hands on things to fix them is particularly difficult. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, what, what is the, the future of, of this area from your perspective? What, what direction are, are you going uh, toward uh, um, a latency uh, uh, monitoring and, and other areas? So I think it's just going to continue. Um, I think we'll start including it in more applications and more internal uh, like in, internal uh, to the uh, compute resource. Uh, so say if we've got a, you know a cluster that's all inside a box and Kubernetes or whatever you know whatever you decide to use, um, understanding the latency between the resources that all live in the same piece of bare metal, I think will be useful over time because in theory that should have very little change. Uh, so any change that comes up is probably indicative of something that's not correct. So I would say that the the latency uh, tracking and monitoring is going to increase and become more inward facing uh, from the point of view of the software switch. Got it. What's the best place for uh, people to, uh, to to find you on the internet these days? Oh, I'm in all the normal places. I've got a Twitter account. It's uh, at Forwarding Plane, and I've got a blog that's at uh, forwardingplane.net, and I'm on LinkedIn and some other places. All the usual suspects. Great. Thank you so much for joining me on OVS Orbit. No problem. Thank you. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.